Good morning. I love having Bill do the announcements because then I don't have to get all the rowdy people in this church together to listen. He does that for me, so thank you, Bill. (laughs) Now, you guys enjoy your fellowship. I enjoy it, too. This morning, we're going to continue in the book of Revelation, and uh, we are coming to the end of the, and the very beginning, of the next section of this book. And I've been sharing with you how there are these chronological things that take place, and then in the midst of those, you have these little parenthetical sections, kind of like uh, when you're watching a movie and all of a sudden they flash to another scene. There's a lot of that in the book of Revelation, and because of that, people get confused. Well, didn't this happen already, or what's going on? And if you try to follow a strictly chronological order to the book of Revelation and the prophecies and the visions in it, you're going to get confused. So I've been going out of my way to make sure that you understand when that happens so that you can follow the narrative. It's really not that difficult if you understand when that happens. Now, going back to previous chapters, actually, we go back to uh, chapter 9 a couple of weeks ago. Uh, We know that there were the seven trumpets, all right? We have the seven trumpet judgments. So the first four happen, and then the angels communicate to John that there's three more woes. That is to say that of the seven trumpets, the last three trumpet judgments, five, six, and seven, are significant. And they bring a great deal of judgment, God's judgment, upon the earth. So we looked at the first woe, we looked at the second woe, and we actually come to the end of the parenthetical section in chapter 11 and also chapter 10. And now we're jumping back where we left off, going back to chapter 9. So you can sort of leapfrog chronologically over chapters 10 and the first part of chapter 11, because those chapters deal with things that are happening simultaneous to the chronological events of the trumpet judgments. So we're jumping back, and if you haven't been here for the last two weeks, you won't miss anything, because we'll be right where you left off. But if you have been here, it might be a little confusing with all the back and forth. So with that explanation, let's open in prayer, and we'll get right into our study. Lord Heavenly Father, as we study the seventh trumpet today, as we consider that third woe, It is both an awful and an awesome thing that happens when that seven trumpet blows. When that seventh trumpet blows, you return to establish your kingdom on the earth. It's an awful experience for those that reject you, but it's an awesome experience for those that receive you. And so while it is a woe for the world that defies your word in those days in the future that we're talking about, For us, it is the answer to our prayers. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And so we look forward to the answer to these prayers that we've prayed probably maybe thousands of times in our lives. And we just ask that you would help us to see past all of the judgments and the challenges that come up, the tribulations and the trials in the book of Revelation, to see these things are actually working toward your promises being fulfilled on the earth. That there needs to be those birth pains, there needs to be those contractions that are talked about in the scripture in order to bring about the fulfillment of your promise that you will rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. We ask that you'd give us wisdom and understanding and encourage our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's study is not that hard to understand, actually, with that as a a background. uh, It's actually just extremely encouraging, and I love it because many people will approach this book and they think, oh, it's difficult, I don't really know what's going on, 
But I think you guys have been tracking as we've gone through these uh, studies and, and have been able to receive the necessary encouragement. Because the last thing we want to do in these dark days is be discouraged or frightened. I mean, so many times I have heard the book of Revelation taught by individuals as like a ghost story. You know, around the campfire with a flashlight under your chin. And the idea is we're going to scare everybody into getting saved now so they don't have to go through this awful time. Listen, that's not it at all. Blessed are those that read and understand the words of this book. So as we get right into it, we're going to pick up where we left off last week in chapter 11 of verse 14. And we actually just have another announcement from John, but, but also an announcement from the angels. It says, the second woe is past. Now we're going back to chapter 9, where we had the sixth trumpet. The second woe is past. The third woe is coming soon. And what the third woe is, is the seventh trumpet. And the seventh trumpet is when the Lord returns. So, I think that John here recognizes, yes, the second woe is past, but there's still one last event that needs to take place on the prophetic calendar. And one of the things to keep in mind is that when the seventh angel sounds the trumpet in heaven, things happen in heaven, but they also happen on earth. So let's, let's read. We'll read this section, actually, uh, right through 18, actually, from verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, uh, because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who, who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. So you see, the Lord's return is both an awful and an awesome experience, depending on whether you actually have rejected Christ or received Christ. That's what changes everything. In fact, eternity itself is either an eternity of blessing or of judgment. And when people say things like, well, if God was loving, he wouldn't judge anyone. Well, if God were fair, he wouldn't bless anyone. Listen, it's very simple. We have an opportunity to respond to God's love and compassion. And if we do, we'll experience that love and compassion forever. We also have an opportunity to reject God's love and compassion. And if we do we'll have an opportunity to reject and be rejected by that love and compassion for for all eternity. So don't be blaming God. So many times we blame God. God gives us a choice. Oh, the other logical question is, well, if God was loving, why does he allow things to happen in the world the way they are? Well, that's on us. I mean, human beings, we've done a really good job of destroying our world. And I'm not just talking about the planet. I'm talking about lives. You read the news, you see just how destructive we are. Mankind is incredibly destructive, self-destructive. And when that happens, there's this tendency to say, well, it's God's fault. Really? 
Because God, he gives us an opportunity to choose what's right. And when we choose what's wrong and we suffer the consequences, that's the result of a loving God saying, you have a choice. Oh, I know God is in control even though he gives us a choice. But if you notice, you do have choices. And when you make those choices, there are consequences, good and bad, for your choices. So what we're going to see here now, and what we've seen and read already, is that the seventh angel sounds the seventh trumpet in heaven, and what John does is he hears loud voices in heaven. And this is in contrast to the silence in heaven when the seventh seal was broken, back in chapter 8, verse 1. The seventh seal's broken in heaven, and there's silence. John says for about a half hour. Like, there's just pure silence. That was the pause before these judgments really kicked into high gear. But now there's loud voices because it's complete, essentially. And John describes how the voices in heaven declared the beginning of Christ's millennial reign on earth. You can see that in verse 15, second part. The kingdom of the world, which, by the way, we're living in the kingdom of the world, and the God of this world and the world system right now is Satan. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. God is sovereign, but the world, given a choice, has chosen Satan. And so the world, if you haven't noticed already, is corrupt. And it's run by men and women who are either possessed or influenced by Satan. So the world is under Satan's control right now by God's sovereignty. But notice what these individuals in heaven announce. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. When we talk about the millennial kingdom, sometimes people will say, well, it's a thousand years, so it's not forever and ever. Technically, yes, but not really, because at the end of those thousand years, Jesus will create a new heaven and a new earth, and he'll reign on that forever and ever and ever. So, yes, it's, it's an eternal kingdom, an earthly and heavenly kingdom, but we'll get to some of those things later on. But just understand, this is the beginning of when this earth will finally be set right, and the world system as it should be. Can I hear an amen? Wouldn't you love for that to be this afternoon? You know, again, after lunch, of course. But, or at least after bagels, because there's bagels downstairs. Now, some of you guys are already, oh, we got to get downstairs right after service. But here's the thing. We would love for it to be now. But think about this with me for a minute. That's good for us. Actually, that's fantastic for us. Is it so good for your uncle who hasn't come to know the Lord yet? Your neighbor? who you're witnessing to, your friend or someone you spend time with who isn't there yet? No. So God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance means he's giving us more time, not to accomplish the work, but to allow God to accomplish the work through us. See, it's not our responsibility to get all those people in our lives to come to church and be saved. We invite them. We pray for them. We wish they would because we love them and we want them to experience God's love. I'm less motivated, honestly, I'm less motivated by thinking, oh, I don't want them to go to hell. I don't. But I'm less motivated by that and more motivated by, I want them to experience the love of Christ. That's more of a motivation, although it's true, I don't want them to be separated from the love of Christ. I actually want them to experience the love of Christ here and now. So that's God's work. We make ourselves available to it. But that's what's taking place. So when you read the newspaper or you watch the news on TV, I don't suggest that at all, and you and you and you start to learn just how wicked this world is, and you start to think, why? Why? Or maybe that's just me when I'm having my coffee in the morning. 
That's why I stopped watching the news at, at breakfast. It was ruining my life. Um, when you think that way, the why is because God is giving us more time as, as a species. As the human race is being given more time to respond to his love and his grace. Oh, but it stinks for us. Yes, it does right now, but we got forever in the presence of Christ. Can we suffer through a little darkness and difficulty in our world, a woke culture and all the nonsense we have to deal with? Can we suffer for it just a little bit longer to make sure that more will come to know him? Say amen. amen. And that's what we're doing here right now. So that makes sense to me. I can live with that. I don't like it, but I can live with it. So John describes how these voices declare, this is the beginning of everything we're waiting for. The kingdom of the world that was once ruled by men has become Christ's kingdom. And when a kingdom is ruled by men, it's influenced by Satan. That we know for sure. But Christ will rule and reign on earth forever and ever. Now John goes on to describe how the 24 elders, which we really haven't talked about in a little bit. We talked about them in chapter 4 and I believe also in chapter 5 and a couple times since. But John describes how these 24 elders in heaven worshipped God. And they worshipped God after Christ began his earthly reign. John is seeing it as it's happening in the future. It's a vision. So after Christ begins his earthly reign, they're worshiping God. They're real happy about it. Now, the number 24 is important. The number 12 is important. And obviously, 12 times 2 is 24. And David, King David, when he established the uh, priesthood in Jerusalem, and, and when he was setting things up for Solomon to build the temple, he established 24 divisions for the priests to represent all of Israel before God. So... That, that number is used to represent a larger group of people. Because of that, and one other reason, which I'll get to in a minute, we believe that the 24 elders actually represent all of us. The church in heaven worshiping God while these events take place on earth. Now, the 24 elders, if they represent all of the redeemed of mankind, and, and they're clearly redeemed of mankind, if you, if you see the things they say along the way, you'll realize these aren't angels. These, these are people that have been redeemed and find their way into heaven. Now, in the Old Testament, Israel was represented by the number 12, 12 tribes of Israel. In the New Testament, and this will come up again later on in the book of Revelation, the church is represented initially by 12 apostles. So when you take 12 and 12 and you get 24 and you look at the meanings of these numbers, it symbolizes and strongly suggests that the 24 elders are representative of us. Now, whether that's, there are actually 12 elder, 24 elders, 12 and 12, or not, isn't as important as what it means for us. Because we will spend eternity in the presence of God, worshiping around the throne. Now, I personally believe the church will be raptured and caught up to the throne of God before many of these events take place, if not all of them, that we've been talking about in the book of Revelation. But even so, this is where our ultimate destination is anyway. This is where we're heading, to be at the throne, around the throne of God, in our resurrected bodies, worshiping Jesus Christ. And for some of us, that's going to happen sooner than others. What do you mean, Pastor Tim? Well, I drive past cemeteries all the time. I'm sure you do. And, you know, you know how it goes, right? We don't live forever in this world. But we as Christians live forever in the presence of God in the next. So some of us that we love, some of our loved ones are already there. And some of us will be there sooner than others. But death is not an end for us. It's the beginning of eternal life. So 
the things I'm sharing with you, please don't just let them go over your head. These are very encouraging truths. And if you don't think about these things, you're going to get depressed in this world. You're going to have anxiety. If you're looking at this world, you need to look into the next world. Live in this world, but look into the next world and our future and the hope that we have in Christ, and you will be encouraged. There's no reason not to be. So these elders are seated on thrones, surrounding the throne of God. We saw this in chapter 4, verse 4. And we're told there that they fell on their faces, they worshiped God, and they gave him thanks for having begun his reign. We thank you, he says there. Uh, we give thanks to you, Lord God, in verse 17, Almighty, the one who is and who was. By the way, did you notice there's something missing there? Usually it's the one who is and was and is to come. Well, why would you say that? This is when he's coming. This is the moment when he's returning, right? So he who, who was and is, no reason to say is to come because you don't have to wait any longer. This is that moment. It makes sense why they would say that. Because you have taken, notice past tense, your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. So this is that moment. And you might be thinking, Pastor Tim, we're halfway through the book. How could we be at the end? I've already explained to you. I'll get into it a little bit more. This is a survey, and in the remainder of the book, we're going to go into more detail, all right? So it's not all chronological, which is why people get confused. Okay, now as these elders, which I believe represent all of us, as they fall on their faces and worship God, they're giving thanks, but they call him, notice they call him the Lord God Almighty. In the Old Testament, that's the all-powerful El Shaddai. It's a name for God that's used quite a bit. They also call him Jehovah, or at least infer it, because he's the great I am, Jehovah. And Jehovah, we've talked about this before, is a compound of three words, or from three words, meaning he who is, he who was, and he who is to come. And while they don't say he who is to come, it's a reference to Jehovah again, and again, Jehovah is translated I am in the scriptures. This would be, these events would be, after Christ's glorious return to earth. This would be after Christ's millennial kingdom <coughs> excuse me, was established on the earth. So these are good days. You know, I think it was FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who, uh, I think it was him, when he was running for president, didn't he have the happy days are here again? Or maybe it was Harry Truman. I'm, I'm probably forgetting now. But I think it was FDR. The happy days are here again. You know, listen, this is the moment where we can sing that song. Because that's what we're looking for. So many people are looking for happiness in this world. And here's the bad news. It's never going to happen. No, it's never going to happen until this moment. So if you're waiting for your life to be just the way you want it to be, and so many of us are, just right, perfect, everything just the way you want it to be, forget it. It's not going to happen. Have you noticed that? Say amen if you've noticed that. Okay. It, it isn't the way you want it, right? Elections don't turn out the way we want you know, nations don't do the things we want. People don't act the way we want. Okay, we're not there. Happy days are not yet here. But those days are coming. Days filled with joy. Keep your eye on this. But you know what? We have to look forward. This is our hope. This will be after Christ's millennial kingdom is established. And listen, this would be after God's wrath had, had already come upon the earth. We're going to talk more about that. We've already talked a lot about it already. God is pouring out his wrath on the earth, and then he returns. Well, why would he do that? Why wouldn't he just return and wipe everybody out? Don't you know the heart of God? It's his heart that no one should perish. So even the wrath of God being poured out on the earth is 
a means of helping people to turn around, repent, and come to Christ before it's too late. That's the heart of God. He's slow to anger, long-suffering, abounding in mercy, so it makes sense that he wouldn't just snap his fingers and destroy everyone, but rather he gives people an opportunity to come to him. Christ's millennial reign, think about this, think about this. Christ's millennial reign is actually a time of judgment. And that time of judgment is going to last a thousand years. Now, it's a time of judgment in the sense that those that reject Christ, well, they're going to be sentenced to judgment, but those that receive Christ are going to be blessed. You know, you you see that scene that Jesus talks about with the sheep and the goats? And you wonder, well, when does that happen? When does that happen in the Gospels? I believe it's in Matthew, and I believe it's in 25. But, you know, the amazing thing is that moment of separation is the millennium. The millennium is not just Christ ruling and reigning and us just sitting around, you know, on clouds and hanging out and having a good time, drinking coffee. There'll be coffee in heaven. has to be, right? So... Right, Anthony? Where's Anthony? Okay. All right. He said yes. So. Um, so, so, so listen, listen. It's a time of judgment. We talk about the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. It's a thousand years with the Lord. A day is a, as, as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. But you have nothing to fear. If, if your judgment, if you're alive on this earth and you're living in the millennium and you receive Christ and repent, that judgment will be in your favor. But if you continue to reject him, it won't be. So you're thinking with me, you're thinking, well, nobody's going to reject him, really? Because we'll see, they do. Amazingly, they do. I, I can't figure it out. I don't understand why people reject him today, but when, with him ruling and reigning on the earth, you would think a few people might say, yeah, I really probably should submit my heart to Christ. But sure enough, we'll get to it. Lots of people, innumerable numbers of people don't. But for now... The other thing that the 24 elders do is they announce what is yet to come. Because at the end of the thousand years, of this thousand year time period, there are events that will happen that we talk about in chapter 20 and 21. We're not there yet. We're going to go into the detail, but this is a summary of what's about to happen. They announce the events that Christ's millennial reign on earth would anticipate. So you have Christ's return. And then he rules and reigns for a thousand years, which is really a time of judgment. And then at the end of that time, when he creates a new heaven and a new earth, or right before that, there are some things that happen in chapter 20. You can look ahead if you like, but essentially it's this. It's summarized for us in the latter part of verse 18. It says, the time has come for judging the dead. That doesn't happen until the very end of the thousand years. And then it goes on to say, for rewarding your servants, the prophets. That really doesn't happen until we get into eternity either. Some of that happens during the, the millennium, but generally the, the real blessing comes after the millennium. And you, we're going to look forward to studying that in the future here in the book of Revelation. Uh, then it says, and your saints... So not just the prophets, but and your saints, those who reverence your name, that is, those who love God, right? Both small and great. But notice, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. You see, here's the thing. Those during the millennium who are judged, they're not destroyed yet. It'll be another thousand years before they're destroyed. That is, cast into the lake of fire. 
We don't see that until we get to chapter 20. So even the judgment that takes place in the millennium is only sort of a temporary judgment. Or think about it this way. It might be like a conviction, but the sentence isn't carried out. Because at the end of the thousand years, that's exactly what happens. And I don't want to jump too far ahead, but it's, it's a pretty gruesome scene. We'll get there. So they're announcing the events that will happen. The judging of the dead at the great white throne judgment, talked about in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 13. The rewarding of God's servants and his saints with the new heaven and the new earth. That's the reward. That's the reward we're waiting for. To live in a perfect world. Can I hear an amen? Perfect world. That's in chapter 21, and cha- beginning of chapter 22. And then also, the destroying of those who destroy the earth in the lake of fire of the second death, which is in chapter 20, verses 14 through 15. So that's what we have to look forward to. We're anticipating it. They're anticipating it. They're announcing it at that time in that vision when Christ returns. Now, I don't want to get too much into the rest of the section, but I... The next section begins in chapter 11, verse 19. And what we're going to do is we're just going to do verse 19, and then we'll pick it up again next week. Because to get into chapter 12 uh, is, well, 19 is the intro to chapters 12 to the rest of the book. But once we get into it, we really need to be into it. So we'll just stop in 19. But let me say this, a couple of reminders. Back in chapter 10, we learned that John had been called to be God's messenger. We all have been called to be God's messengers. He had heard a voice from heaven that told him to take the unsealed scroll from the mighty angel's hand, that is, from Jesus' hand. John had been told by Jesus to take this scroll, this unsealed scroll, and to eat it, that is, to assimilate it. And he had been called to prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings in chapter 10, verse 11. We studied that a few weeks ago. He's told to write these things down in order to share them with others. And, of course, he is, and we're reading it today. And the fact that the word again is used in this section divides the book of Revelation, at least the third part of the book of Revelation, into into two sections. It's chapter 6 through chapter 11, verse 18, that's part 1, and then chapter 11, verse 19 to chapter 22, verse 6, and then the rest of chapter 22 is sort of the epilogue. So the book is very logically organized, but you have to understand the breakdown to be able to interpret it properly. And you will, because we're going to be going through this. Now, remember I shared with you the little scroll that was talked about in chapter 5 and throughout the book, chapter 10 as well, was a deed of purchase, like a title on a house or a car? Well, the deed of purchase, they were sealed scrolls, and in the ancient world, they'd seal the scroll with consecutive seals, but the fine print was on the reverse side. So you had all the details on the reverse side. You had all the major summaries of the transaction on the front. Well, that's the way the book of Revelation is organized. We've already gone through the summary, the the large bold print, the major issues, major bullet points. Now we're going to flip that over. And from this chapter, chapter 11, verse 19, to chapter 22, verse 6, we're going to be looking at the fine print. So we're going to go back over the things that lead up to Christ's return and then go beyond that. But all of that is going to be all the little details that John has not yet shared with us. Because sometimes it's better to give an overview, you know, and then go back over it and break down the details. And that's the way the book of Revelation is organized. He's called to give us the details from the other side of the scroll. He's now going to share the same subject with the same audience, but from a different angle, okay? 
He's going to do what the angel or the messenger, Jesus, told him to do. He's going to prophesy about the many different people on the earth and their leaders during that time period known as the tribulation, seven years of tribulation. Now, the first thing that happens, and this is just the intro, it ends on a little bit of a cliffhanger today, but not really, because this is what happens in heaven. And then we see some visions that describe some of the things that will take place or have some of the things that have already taken place on earth. It gives us a, a panorama of how God has been working and will work in the future. But we start in verse 19. This is quite a scene. It's enough for this morning. It says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. So had Steven Spielberg done a little reading, he would have found out where the ark of the covenant is. Apparently it's in heaven. Or, or maybe there's a, a, a copy. Maybe the earthly was a copy of the heavenly. But I'm just being a little silly today. All right. So, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. So those are the effects that happen on the earth when God's temple in heaven is open. Let me explain what's happening here. The opening of God's temple in heaven is a prelude to God's judgment on earth. And so we're going to go back over those judgments that we've already talked a little bit about. And it shows that God is about to act on behalf of his people Israel. When we get into the fine print on the reverse side of the scroll, Israel is at the center of everything we're going to talk about moving forward. Up until this point, we haven't really talked a lot about Israel. There have been a few you know, flashpoints. There have been a few flash forwards or sideways. And we've talked in certain chapters, like chapter 7 and 14, we've talked a little bit, of, uh, well, chapter 14, we will talk about it. We talk a little bit about Israel, but now we're going to focus in. And as we get to the fine print, a lot of it has to do with Israel. So that will pick up next week. But for now, notice the focus is on a temple in heaven, And the scriptures tell us that when Moses was told to build a tabernacle, that it was a copy of the temple in heaven. So the the temples on earth are sort of designed after the temple in heaven. There is a temple in heaven. Uh, But let's keep this in mind. Heaven itself is God's temple, since it is truly his dwelling place. And, you know, God is about to act on behalf of his people Israel. And we're going to see it as we study the rest of this book. John saw God's heavenly temple... And he had just been told in chapter 11, verse 1, to measure the earthly temple. So this is very, very focused on the Jews. And here we see God's earthly temple um, is where the Jews worship God in heaven. They worship God in heaven, but from an earthly temple. Now we're seeing a heavenly temple. So it points us to Israel, and that is going to be our focus moving forward. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was seen in his temple. The ark represented God's covenant with his people, Israel. It was at the center of the, it's called the ark of the covenant. It's at the very center of the old covenant. And that's why it's mentioned here, because again, pointing towards Israel. We're also told that the ark, which is, just basically means box, the ark was covered with a mercy seat, an atonement cover. It covered the ark, and it represented God's throne. And so here we're seeing the throne of God in vision. And, of course, the most holy place where the ark was kept revealed God's presence to Israel. So don't miss this. It's all about Israel. Now, remember, we were told here in verse 19 that the opening of God's temple in heaven caused severe storms, 
an earthquake, and a hailstorm on the earth. Now, those are all the things we've already talked about on the earth. So now we're beginning to understand when God begins to act on behalf of Israel, the judgments we've talked about and we'll talk about more in detail happen because God is acting on behalf of his people. Are you with me? Maybe not. Are you with me? Okay. It's a lot of information, but we're almost done. Now, Moses, Elijah, and the people of Israel had similar experiences with God in the book of Exodus. I mean, this is not uncommon to see earthquakes and hailstorms and flashes of lightning. We've seen it before. But this is sort of summarizing the things that will be taking place on the earth when God begins from heaven to act on behalf of Israel. And so now we're already in that second half of this section where we're looking at the details of God's work on behalf of his people. Now, one of the things I want to mention as we close, there are actually four times in the book of Revelation where heaven is open. Four times where we're told there are heavenly openings. The first was in chapter 4. We've already studied it in verse 1, where there was a door standing open in heaven. I believe that that is the door that stands open in heaven when, when God, Christ, calls the church into his presence. I believe that in chapter 4, verse 1, we're talking about John being called into heaven and that that is actually a type or symbol of the rapture of the church. When John gets to heaven, the 24 elders are already there. So who do they represent? The redeemed of mankind. Why would they be there if they weren't raptured? Well, there could be those that died in Christ, but we're told by Paul that the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive will be caught up to meet them in the air. So that's the first opening. Then we see in chapter 11, verse 19, where we are right now, an opening of God's temple in heaven for him to act on his behalf of his people, Israel. That's where we are right now. There are two more openings, which we'll talk about. There's the opening of God's temple in heaven for him to pour out his wrath on the earth. That takes place in chapter 15, verse 5. And finally, probably the best opening, well, I don't know, arguably the best, heaven standing open when Christ returns to earth. And we'll look at the details in chapter 19, verse 11. So today's kind of a table of contents for the rest of our studies. And the point of going over this in the detail I am going through it is so you will not get lost. It is very easy to get lost when you study a book that jumps around chronologically or goes through all of this significant information and then stops at the end and then goes back over it to deal with all the details. But if someone explains that to you, you'll see it makes perfect sense. And I hope and I pray that as we've been going through the book of Revelation, first of all, you're encouraged. Because even if you walk out of here and you don't understand a lot of these details, if you're encouraged, amen. But it would be nice if in addition to being encouraged, you learn something, right? And you're learning God's plan of salvation for his people. And that also is very encouraging. And remember, the book opened with these words, and we'll close this morning, being reminded, going back to chapter 1, People open to the book of Revelation and they think, oh, oh, I can't understand that book. And yet, we read in verse 3, at the beginning of this book, Blessed, or oh, how happy is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed, or oh, how happy are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. And that John wrote in about 95 A.D. So if the time was near then, it's even nearer today. Are you ready for that? You know, are you ready for Christ to come again? Is it going to be an awful experience or an awesome experience? Well, that's up to you. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, 
Thank you for your word. Thank you for this very encouraging message, setting the stage for many more studies this morning, but helping us to put these visions in perspective and and, and kind of know where you're going and what you're trying to teach us and instruct us through your word. And as we consider your plan for your people, Israel, we know you have a special plan for the church. We've talked some about that, but you have a special plan for your people, Israel, who are currently gathered in unbelief in the promised land since 1948 and really are not a nation that is serving you per se or is at least serving you with blinders on. And Lord, we we pray for the peace of Israel. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray that your people would come to know you. But we also know that according to your word, that's not going to happen for a while yet. At least it can happen in the lives of individuals, but as a people, we know that day is yet to come. But we also know during that time of tribulation that your people, many of your people, will come to know you and serve you. They'll mourn like you mourn for one who's been pierced. We're told that Israel will be saved by Paul in the book of Romans. That day may not be today, but the day is coming where not only the church, the bride of Christ, will worship you, but your people Israel, your chosen people, will worship you as well. And we look forward to that day and look forward to future studies on this topic and pray that you continue to give us understanding and, of course, continue to encourage us and, of course, help us to remember that the choice we make for you has consequences that are eternal. Oh, Lord, we thank you for coming, sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you that he rose again. We thank you that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead And that because we've given our hearts to you, that will be an awesome experience. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.